and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird show and our last show of the year. It's our farewell show? For the year, maybe. To 2017? Yeah. See how I did that? I was trying to build height. Okay. That's the way it's done. Is, is, is that how it's done? Do you feel hyped now? I don't know. Ask our listeners. Well, they may be excited because we're going on break. They then typically again, are. Then again, if you're that excited that we're going on break, why are you still listening? No, 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 no. <laughs> Do not encourage people to stop listening. Okay. That's not the way this works. That is the opposite of hype. And if you don't understand how our show ended up on your in, in your podcast application, um, we're not going to tell you how to remove it. How's that? <laughs> Better? <laughs> I think it's very important that we encourage this it, during this time of giving that people share our podcast while we're on break. Share with your friends and neighbors, people you don't like very much. People that you think will benefit from the wisdom and the information contained occasionally within our podcast. All about open wheel racing. Yes. In some form. And possibly other stuff, but mostly open wheel racing. Often single seater open wheel racing. Yeah. Speaking of open wheel racing. Which series are we going to lead with today? IndyCar. Naturally. IndyCar is getting a new team. Okay. Now, I, I'm not completely sure this is accurate, but the BBC said it, so I'm going with it. According to, to the BBC, uh, the first all-British team is coming to the IndyCar series. Now, I'm not completely sure why they, they've declared this is the all an all-British team, because... Yes, the team is, instead of, you know, most IndyCar teams are based around um, the Indianapolis with, I think there, there may be like one or two down in Texas and um, there's one outside of Chicago. I think Ed Jones is out of Chicago and things like that. But their new team is actually based out of Surrey in England. Interesting. If they're in the saddle of formula one why didn't they decide to go to formula one i mean that would have seemed to make such more sense well i'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute um i'm assuming the reason why bbc went this way went the way the tag this is the first all british team because they signed max chilton as one of their drivers okay um now they signed max chilton as one of their drivers but their other driver that they signed is actually um oh I just uh Charlie Kimball. Okay. Who's an American? That's not an all British team. And they're running Chevy engines. Well, yeah, but they only have a choice between Honda Yeah, they and didn't Chevy. have a choice with an English engine there, but yeah. So you may in theory you may have heard of Carlin. Carlin has a very big presence in the junior series. Oh, okay. Um, previous, as, as a matter of fact, Max Chilton has history with Carlin. He drove for Carlin in the Indy Light Series. Carlin had multiple cars running in Indy Lights the last couple of years. They've also uh, been heavy participants in uh, the European F2 and F3 Series. So even in the Formula One development ladder, they have a history, and they've been running in these junior series 
Sebastian Vettel at one point drove for Carlin. And is this their first foray into prime time? In, into a top-level team, yes. This is Carlin's first ever top-level team. Um, so now to get back to your question as to why IndyCar as opposed to Formula One. Um, well, for starters, oh, and I should also mention, Nico Rosberg also drove for Carlin. Really? In his development time, yeah. Um, it's always been Carlin's plan to be at the top level of one of the major series. Okay. Um, they've always wanted to have that development tra- chain of you can start a driver at the bottom, work him all the, all the way up, and have a seat for him similar to the, the Red Bull driver development program. Um, but the reason why they went with IndyCar as opposed to Formula One is because as the uh, team boss Trevor Carlin says, Formula One's costs are ridiculous. Stupid expensive? Mm-hmm. And, and we've talked about this before of, you know, how do you make money in Formula One? Or if you want to get started in Formula One as a small team, you enter Formula One as a big team and then wait. <laughs> 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 and you have to really wonder, what are the benefits to a team in Formula One? I mean, think about the top-tier teams. They're all either car manufacturers or drinks manufacturers. They're getting publicity from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. But you look at a, a Carlin, a Haas, a, a Sauber, a Sauber, a Caterham back in the day. You know, for the... What is the return on their investment well, at for, the Formula One level? I, I think for Caterham, since they are a car manufacturer or were a car manufacturer, well, they still exist as a car manufacturer, there's that piece that goes with it of it's your brand. and per, I mean, it's the same reason that Ferrari's there. It's your brand, and it's about performance. And if we're successful in Formula One, it means our road cars are really good performing cars. But then if you do you know, crummy in Formula One, does that really say a whole lot? Well, I understand that thought process, but what I'm trying to say is Caterham is not an internationally road car standard like a Mercedes, a Ferrari, a Ford. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm throwing things out there. But then you look at like the IndyCar series and look at the names of the teams that are run in the IndyCar series. You know, you've got an Andretti team, racing fa- family. Mm-hmm. You have... Um, I've lost one. You've got Foyt. You've got uh, Schmidt-Peterson. Racing types. Mm -hmm. But they're not promoting, like, a brand. There's not a Mercedes team. Yeah, there's no, you know, Honda, there's no works team for for any company. Well, I mean, keep in mind, that makes sense since it's more of a stock series. Yeah. But you don't see, like, you you have sponsors on a car. Like, there was the Target car. But you don't have a McDonald's team. Does that make sense? That you see where I'm kind of going with that? Yeah, in a in a way, I'm surprised that there's not more of these um, iconic American brands taking taking part in Formula One or excuse me, not in Formula One in IndyCar. Um, yes, it has a smaller audience than NASCAR, but still. There's an audience. I know. 
but I think that that's just people being snobs. Reverse snobbery, actually. Reverse snobbery. Yes. I've coined that term now. Use it three times and you too can earn reverse snobbery. Well, I, I'm not completely sure it's even a reverse snobbery thing. I mean, in the 70s, I think open wheel racing was much bigger in the United States and the Indy 500 was more of a marquee event in the U.S. than it is today. I mean, it is to some extent, but arguably something like the Daytona 500 is a much bigger event. And I kind of wonder if that's because of the turmoil and the business issues that the various open-wheel racing series have had in the late 70s and into the 80s in the U.S. And the fact that they couldn't figure out how to position themselves in relation to, say, a Formula One. I don't know. But I think the conflict between the two definitely plays into where their position is in the motorsport hierarchy, both on this side of the pond and on the other side of the pond. Because keep in mind, IndyCar has a really odd place in the landscape of motorsport. In what way? Well, okay, so if you look at motorsport in the U.S., <coughs> IndyCar sits off to the side as being not NASCAR. You know, you look at the, the U.S. typical motorsport fan, the first thing they're going to think of is, oh, you follow NASCAR. We run into this all the time. Yeah. Um, when you look across the pond where they are much more interested in single-seater open wheel, and I mean Formula One being so big, IndyCar is seen as that other series. Like, Fernando didn't entertain an IndyCar run. He, inter he entertained doing the 500. Like, the 500 has cachet like Monaco has cachet. But not the whole series. I think it's viewed as a little bit of a podunk series from Formula One and a little too exclusive to the NASCAR world. I, okay, I, I, I guess I could see that. Or I could be completely off base. I mean... Well, I don't know because, because I don't know how they view a series like DTM or British Touring Car or something like that and how um, how iconic those series are to those countries. Well, there's that part too because I don't know. I don't, we're not following DTM and um, I mean, I know DTM is a big deal but I don't know how big, I don't know how it ranks in the landscape. I would love to see an infographic of the motorsport landscape ranking the combination of cachet to popularity. Okay, I vote that uh, either the BBC or Sky Sports should, should get on that. Well, you know, they listen to us so carefully. Thankfully, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> What's your next story? Um, over to Formula One. So word came out this week from... Alex Wirtz, the, the chairman of the Grand Prix Drivers Association, that the association has 100% membership for, as he said, maybe the first time in history. So the holdouts for quite a while has been Lewis Hamilton and Kimi Raikkonen. 
why would they not join the drivers association what is their rationale could they not afford it yeah the, the, certainly especially lewis he couldn't afford the dues well i mean that he's was... out gallivanting across the world does it inter? Do the meetings interfere with his Mustang driving schedule in California? I mean, what is his problem? He's driving Mustangs in California. Haven't you seen his Instagram account? No, I'm not on Instagram. If he doesn't where post, where the kids are these days? If he doesn't post it on Twitter's, I don't see it. Okay, but Instagram is where the kids are these days. That's what the kids tell me. Well, I was going to say they're, they're if snapping all the time. I was I was going to say if all the kids are on Instagram these days, that would be why I'm not on it. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Just saying. Well, you know, you got you got to keep up with the youngins. So on the interwebs. No, actually I don't. They can go do their thing off to the side and leave me out of it. And while they're at it, get off my lawn. <laughs> so, old age is showing. Yeah, probably. Can I interrupt you again as you start the sentence? Because I could keep going. Okay, at some point we do have to get to all the stories in the show. All the stories, okay. Yeah. So the question is, well, what, what finally triggered Lewis and Kimmy and – Whatever other remaining holdouts are, were left. I want to know why they were boycotting. They weren't boycotting. Um, Lewis in the past has said, because he was asked about it a couple of years ago, as to why he's not part of the, G, the GPDA. Um, and he basically said that he didn't see a need. Okay. So that's the question is, what's changed that now they feel the need to be – I mean, there was a lot of talk when there was the comments about the halo and the position regarding uh, the GPDA's recommendations for the halo and then like Lewis who said that he thought it was ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Alex Wartz, he says the drivers believe unity is fundamental for the sport's success and that this prevents any politics or power fights from ultimately compromising on-track performance. Which sounds like a very political answer to me. It does. I'm betting that they got to 100% membership by giving Kimmy and Lewis their own membership without making them do anything. I don't know. So, so they're, they're members at large? Is that what you're saying? They're like members at large. Okay. You didn't have to actually pay your dues and join or fill out an application. You just were accepted. Oh, is that what it is? You get to be a member, and you get to be a member and poof, we're at 100%. So, yeah, well, we don't know what's happening, but the, the thought is is that this is leverage that the GPDA can use to make sure that as we get to, to 2021 and the various commercial agreements are negotiated, um, that they have – that they're a unified front in that. Not that these agreements typically involve the drivers, but, yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, maybe they could, like, improve that halo. That, I think, is one of the things that they're pushing, is that the halo, yes, it's a solution, but it ain't a great solution. (laughs) Just because we have a solution doesn't mean that it's matching up with what we want the solution to be. Yeah. 
So moving on. As we all know, the latest McLaren Honda era has officially ended now. And there was sadness and rending of clothes, and people were crying in the streets. Well, Yasuki Hasegawa, the head of Honda's Formula One development team, the one who, who in the past in interviews has said that it was his decisions and his design and his direction that has led them down the path that they have taken, he now says that the end of the partnership is a relief. Okay. Yeah. He says it's a relief. Um, it's good to concentrate on next season. I hope they are concentrating on next season. I'm sure it is a relief from the standpoint of the partnership never went well. <laughs> yeah, well, he says, you might not believe us, but I don't think we, as in McLaren and Honda, have a human issue. We have a very good relationship with McLaren. I don't feel anything like it's a fresh start. It's just up to us to concentrate now on making our engine better. So from that point of view, it is no different. We still have a huge pressure from the inside and the outside. I'm pretty confident to work with Toro Rosso as well, and it is exciting. It's a new challenge, and having more information and creating new relationships with a different group is very exciting. But as I've always mentioned, we have no plan to modify the engine concept, so from that point of view, we've already started next year's engine development. So it's not a big difference, actually, for our development group. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it feels like he's in his own little universe there. I wouldn't be surprised if he is in his own little universe. Yeah, I mean, he says that now Honda's focus is on improving its reputation. Okay. They're going to need to spend some time there. Because you know that they were very concerned that while we were at Mid-Ohio that we snickered every time there was any kind of mention of Honda performance. Yes. And they are concerned about that. Well, they were very concerned as we walked around the paddock and we asked all the people that would stop near us, and do you think this Honda will finish the race? And they did not appreciate it when we asked, you know. No, 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 no. That was the folks at the Honda booth. They didn't like that. Uh, of of don't get too close when they start the engine because it might explode. Well, that was, was that was disappointed. When you asked that about the Honda racing merchandise yeah, and well. if the shirt would explode, <laughs> um, they giggled politely and then backed away from you quickly. Yeah, well, there was that. <laughs> I mean, it was no vacuuming on the racetrack like we did at the Dyson booth. Yeah, but. there was that. So over on the McLaren side, yeah. Eric Bouye says that he was, and, and this is actually, it's a valid concern when you think about it. He was very concerned that starting in preseason last year, this past year, um, when they saw how poorly the Honda engine was performing and that how much that they were going to be struggling this year, he was very concerned that they were going to start losing staff. Ooh. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. Um, he said that morale was starting to, to, to plummet precipitously um, and that uh, he pushed very hard that, you know, a big consequences 
of you know they've worked very hard to reconstitute the team after Mercedes left and rebuild all this experience. They lost a lot of folks when Lewis left. There, there was a big drain then. So they've been trying to reconstitute it, and then of course you add into it uh, the Ron Dennis stuff, and and you know him purging anything that had to do with Martin Whitmarsh. There were some that we were just purging the Ron Dennis thing. Well, but Martin was a like a sane and rational human being. No, as you'll recall, Ron Dennis came in because he wasn't happy with the the Martin Whitmarsher. He returned, he purged Martin, who who no. is still kind of in his undisclosed location as well as folks around Martin. Right, and then we have so now then it purged was, Ron Dennis. Right. Which might seem to think that we would, like, oh, I don't know, reach out and rescue poor Martin? Well, it, it, it's a matter of whether or not Mansur, OJ, and the current leadership folks think that it's worth bringing Martin back. I mean, he did let Mercedes go. True. In favor of Honda. Mm-hmm. And we see how well that went. Anyway. Well, actually, he I don't think he was the one. No, Martin left before the Honda deal. Oh, okay. He lost, he, he lost the, the works designation and um, couldn't keep Mercedes from starting up their own works team and, and the free engines that they were getting. But it was Ron Dennis who came in and said, we're going with Honda and negotiated that deal to bring Honda in with this idea of we will never win championships as we're a not, customer team. So we need to a be a works team. team. So that, w- that was the philosophy that brought them in. Okay. Well, and the loss of the bleeding of the possible employees is what brought them out. Yeah. Now, I can understand Eric Lier's concern. I mean, sure, you've got to imagine that the feeling at the factory and on the grid. Be, I mean, we've heard Fernando's been so outspoken about his unhappiness. And we haven't heard from, you know, Engine Worker 92. Um, but you got to feel like the morale at McLaren has got to be pretty low. Yeah. I mean, especially if... Okay, and, and not even so much from the engine side, but if, if what McLaren has claimed, and, and all the teams see this, but if what McLaren has claimed about the aerodynamics of that car is true, that aerodynamically that was a very strong car for the last two years, and the teams can see, they, they can see the speed trap data, they, 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 they can do that same analysis. If that's true, then the aerodynamics folks, even if the car is doing crappy, they're going to be in demand at these other teams. True. And why turn around and stay with a loser of a team when you can move off to a team that's showing good performance, that's showing solid performance, and is on an upswing and possibly get a pay raise as part of it because their revenues are up, their sponsorship is up, and then you get to turn around and say, I designed it you know, an improving team, an, ex- an improving car, a car that was at this point on the grid and not back here. Well, yeah. So. I mean, there's a lo- thousand reasons why you would jump ship from McLaren um, in their current state. I mean, they're just not, it, it's got to be a tough day to go into the office and go, okay, today, today's the day we're going to make it better. And have that 21 times hit you that no today's not the day you're going to make it better yeah 
and that's 21 times in just one year. Try having three years of those 21 times. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's tough. That's tough on anybody's morale. So speaking of staff leaving, over on the Honda side, Yusuke Hasegawa is now moved on to other things. You mean the one that said that there's no change and that they're going to sit down and just focus on the engine? And yeah. it's a relief to not be working with McLaren anymore. That that, that ver- Yusuke? That that one. Um, his role, which had been it, he was in charge of both the development of the engines but also race operations, is being split off into two separate roles, neither of which he will have. Okay. <laughs> do we have any idea of what his role will be? I Head do janitor? not right now. Um, but knowing how the Japanese industry works and how Honda works – um, he's probably off to some other role within the company. He, he is not out of a job completely. Um, yes, it may be a, a, a head janitor um, ordering the coffee type position. Maybe he'll run a division that is sort of bulletproof, like their minivan division. Is it bulletproof? Well, it's like the biggest selling minivan in the world, right? Maybe the engines are bulletproof because you don't need as much performance in a minivan engine as you do in in a race car engine. Well, I'm pretty sure you need no performance in a minivan (laughs) engine. It just needs to, like, go (laughs) and not blow up. See? Yeah, that's why I'm thinking that that's where he's been moved off to is some bulletproof division. I would like to hear from our listeners as to what they think the new position for uh, whatever his name is. Yusuke, you you've already he, he he's, he's dead, dead to you already. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we all know that me and names are not a good thing. He, he is now Mr. Hasegawa or Hasegawa-san is now an unperson to you. He is a non-entity. <laughs> is a non-entity. Okay. Well, so the other piece of the whole Honda equation is Toro Rosso. Now that they are getting the engines, well. James Key, who's the technical director over at Toro Rosso, has admitted that um, this isn't going to be easy. What part of three years of failing McLaren did he think, oh, well, if we just come in, we can solve all these problems? Well, he's not even approaching it from a performance perspective. He is approaching it from the perspective of how do we get this lump of machinery into our car? Because the Honda power unit in general, the layout, the architecture, the design of it, the concept of how it works is completely different than the Renault power unit that they have had and that have they have designed their chassis around and have experience designing their chassis around. And it's a bigger departure from the Ferrari one that they had the year before that. That's how it's a challenge. And... This sounds remarkably familiar to the first year Honda ran with McLaren with their zero-scale You know, not even so much that. It was more the first year that Renault ran with a Renault engine in their car. Where they didn't the, have a the car current, designed for it. Right. That, that, that's a bit closer to, to it as opposed and, to – because McLaren knew walking into it, they, they had enough information – at the start of the partnership to know what that design was going to look like, and they did design that car around the crap box engine. 
the problem is that because Honda is an act, was an active uh, competitor on the field, the likelihood that Honda could talk to Toro Rosso during the season to help them design around the engine for 2018 was probably quite limited. Right. Um, well, there's that, and there's, there's a couple of other things that, that he talks about. Um, he says, in terms of the power units themselves, he says they're completely different. It's a very nicely packaged engine, but the whole power unit is a different architecture. It doesn't drop into the same space. There's quite a bit of car layout work that has to be done to adapt to it. He says they try to stick to a rule that if a car has already been in a development process for a while, not to upset any major items such as aero surfaces and that sort of thing. So we're not starting from scratch in too many areas. We've adapted the car under the skin as best we can, and that's led to quite a different approach to the chassis de design, to the way the gearbox works, and so on. It says they've carried over the concepts and developed them further from this year's car. The gearbox in particular, Toro Rosso, I didn't know this, Toro Rosso developed and designed their own gearbox. They have to now redesign that gearbox specifically for the Honda engine, but they did that themselves, and the internals came from Red Bull technology because Red Bull designs their own gearboxes too. I didn't realize they did that. I didn't know they designed their own gearbox. Yeah. But that... Uh, the other challenge, though, is that when it comes to the gearbox, where they've relied on internals from Red Bull, that was a little easier when they were both running the same engines. Mm. He, um, so what uh, James Key says is that the gearbox layout and its size is different for this engine compared to what they have this past year. He says he thinks the concept is the same, but the overall architecture is different. Some internals will carry over. Some will be changed. Some will be bespoke to the, to the Toro Rosso box. Otherwise, it will be pretty close to what they've been running. And, you know, to go along with what we just said, there's a lot more going on at Toro Rosso than people think. People don't know Toro Rosso. It's really frustrating. Although it makes a lot of sense to join together with Red Bull where you can, we've got our own aero department in Bicester with our own wind tunnel, and that's entirely independent because it has to be legally. The entire design of the car is done in Fanzia. The only bit of the car that comes from uh, Red Bull is the gearbox internals, which are jointly designed because they are often things that we specifically need. Interesting. Yeah. And speaking of Toro Rosso, you know, this is the time of year, and we're not going to have too much of it, and some of that is because we're going on vacation, so we're not scrambling for stories as we normally are but this is the time of year that now that the season is over as we mentioned last year that the team performance reviews and the driver self-reviews start to come in and we have the performance review for daniel caveat oh. from france toast i didn't know that he was going to get a voice in uh, daniel's uh performance review you know not being on the team. now that he's been fired yeah well what it was is is they prepped the review 
because you know they they were working throughout the year they're taking their notes and they got to have everything ready so it's not you know you get to the end of the season and oh crap what happened in, in race one that you know they they've, they had to compile their notes throughout the season to get their review ready and figure out what his bonus was going to be and whether or not he was going to get the merit increase and you know was that rating going to be a, a, a meets expectations or not they had they had, they, they had all the notes there so everything was prepared he just he doesn't get anything else okay so what was his evaluation of daniel's performance this well year? franz toast said sometimes he was too aggressive at the beginning of the race the first corner was his weak point he wanted too much in the first 100 meters success by any means that puts you under pressure unnecessary pressure and that never works yeah he does say that he's still convinced that Daniel has very high natural speed. He says he was sometimes even faster than Daniel Ricardo, but somehow last year and this year he couldn't show the potential that is within him. He was involved in many incidents, but in his defense, I also have to say that he had many reliability issues, and that didn't help build up confidence. Being the victim of so many incidents killed the performance he would have been able to show. Maybe a short break to get organized again, and probably we will see Daniil back in his usual performance level with another team. I don't think we're going to ever see him come back. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you. I mean, there, there's too many drivers in waiting, and more than that, there's too many drivers with money in waiting. That unless he can come up with some serious financial backing, I don't think he's going to have a CD. We, I think it is just as likely that we will see Pastor Maldonado back in Formula One as it is that we will see Daniel Kvyat. Well, it has been a very uneventful two years without Pastor. So I think that you know that is definitely a possibility. I don't know. We still have Lance Stroll. He stopped crashing once he figured out how to drive the car. Ish. He had a podium. He did, and I think it was a fluke. I get that you don't like Lance Stroll. You have determined that there is no redemption for the poor little Canadian. But give the boy a chance. Okay. He's supposed to be this phenom. Let's let him have a moment. Well, we're still talking about Daniel Fiat because, you know, the notes, they, they went up the leadership chain here. Mm -hmm. Helmut Marco, the advisor to both teams, the Red Bull team and the Toro Rosso team, also uh, had to chime in. And he certainly had been watching Daniel for a while. Um, he actually went so – and in a way I kind of think this is a little disheartening to the current Toro Rosso pairing. But he went so far as to say that he thinks that Daniel Kvyat has more talent than Pierre Gasly and Brendan Hartley. Okay. <laughs> he says, when, when asked if, if he thought Kvyat had more talent, he said, I completely agree, yes. Unfortunately, he just showed it in his first year with Toro Rosso and in his first year with Red Bull Racing. After that, his performance drastically went down. He had brake and tire issues that Daniel didn't have. In short, something happened to him mentally. He lost his speed and his ease. We don't know what it was. We tried many things, but his speed just wouldn't come back. Unfortunately, we have no idea what happened. 
There were also too many accidents at the start of a race, and he didn't react too well to it either. He retreated into his shell and didn't want anybody to tell him what to do. Oh, so he's got great talent, no way to use it, and he's got a bad personality. Yeah, that's a glowing recommendation. Well, it means that, you know, he, he doesn't fully have the kiss of death. Well, he's not a great guy. Because they're not saying he's a great guy. <laughs> He, he went on to say, it's sad because I remember GP3 in Monza and Spa where he completely outperformed the competition. At Toro Rosso, there was one race where he started from behind and made his way through the field. That was Monza in 2014. He said he was attacking Kimi Raikkonen when his brakes failed. He had some sensational races. So, okay, so he's just not living up to potential is what this is saying. Well, that would be why he was fired because he did not meet expectations. So, Russian drivers, while we're talking about Russian drivers, we mentioned briefly last week, to which we, we got a comment from Phil of basically who the hell is Ser Sergei Sorokin. Um, there was confirmation this week that Sergei Sorokin is now the favorite to get the seat at Williams for 2018. Okay, what happened to Paul DeResta and what's-his-face Kibitza? And Robert Kibitza? Uh, I don't know. My well, third cousin's second wife. I mean, all of those people were in the running for that seat. What happened? The, according to the there, – there's two different things that, that seem to be influencing Williams. Um, yes, the story of Robert Kubica is a William – I mean, it's, it, it is tailor-made for Williams and the way the team operates and the image around Williams as an organization. However – Sorokin also drove alongside Paul DeResta and alongside Robert Kubica at the tests in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. Sorokin was faster. Interesting. The other piece is that it's estimated that Sergei Sorokin would bring with him somewhere in the area of 15 million pounds. That's not small change. Now, despite... Phil's comments of who the hell is Sergei Sorokin, um, it, his name has popped up in the past a few times. Hmm. Um, it was Sergei Sorokin who three or four years ago, he was the racing driver who was tied to the Russian oligarchs that were supposedly going to fund Sauber that Monisha Keltenborn had supposedly negotiated a deal with. It was Sergei Sorokin who was going to get the seat as part of the deal that was supposed to be coming from the Russian money. Uh. That A, never appeared. That B, at the time, Sorokin was deemed not ready and did not have the talent or the speed to be brought into Formula One. And so both disappeared for a stretch. But Sorokin has always been on the fringes of Formula One as potentially getting a seat. Interesting. But what I find is odd is that initially the talk was that Williams wanted somebody with experience to offset and be a mentor to Lance Stroll. Yeah. Sergey Sorotkin has not driven in Formula One. And I could see if 
there was somebody who was who could act as that elder statesman for the team as a driver to offset bringing in another rookie because Williams likes to bring in young drivers and likes to bring in rookies. But Lance Stroll is not that voice of experience and expertise. Not with one year under his belt. No, he's not. And I don't know. I mean, you're hard-pressed in during a test to say you're faster than our current lead person. We're not going to consider you. I mean, that's a hard thing yeah, to ask Williams to do. Yeah, it is, especially right now, and especially when you come with a big check. Right. But Williams is not <coughs> known for being swayed too much by big checks. I mean, they're swayed by some. Stroll's got a big check. Maldonado had a big check. What I would like to know, especially knowing that he's got the backing of Mercedes, is how Pascal Verline compares to Sorokin mm -hmm. on that performance basis. He's got two years of experience driving Formula One cars. Yes, he was outshined by Esteban Ocon dramatically, um, but he's shown promise. He's backed by Mercedes, and... Williams runs Mercedes power units. Couldn't Mercedes have, especially if we're talking 15 million pounds, wouldn't Mercedes have come up with a comparable compensation package when it came to power units or whatever? Yeah. I don't know. But it's not confirmed, right? It's just... It, it is currently not confirmed. Um, the expectation is that we will have an announcement in January. Okay. So we'll see. Um, but, yeah, Sorotkin, he's tied to Russian oligarchs and Monisha. I wonder if Monisha is now one of his managers. Well, this thing could all fall apart because, it, you know, it did fall apart for Monisha several times too. So. But what we don't know is did it fall apart because the backing and the money was sketchy or because – Monisha being Monisha and her questionable business deals. Well, the fact she couldn't count was an issue. Questionable business deals. <laughs> I don't know. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I don't know. For now. Um, speaking of Williams, you know, once again, for the second year in a row, we had high hopes for Williams to be, you know, best of the rest, only to get bested by Force India who we thought for sure was going to go under. Well, we've been predicting Force India to go under for a very long time. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I may not be predicting that next, this coming year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where the magic fairy money is coming from, but apparently, because it's not coming from Vijay Malia, that's for sure. Well, I think Vijay might be printing it, you know, under his, his bed as he, like, tries to avoid prison. Yeah. Um. Okay, so, yes, we keep hoping that they'll be best of the rest. And I have to tell you, I thought that their performance this year was dismal. Yeah. So did not live up to their potential. They have a bad performance review. Definitely getting a needs improvement. Well, Patty Lowe, you know, chief technical officer at Williams now, Patty Lowe, has said that uh, Force India outdeveloped them this past year. 
Yes. Um, not completely clear as to why they managed to outdevelop them, uh, but he said that they started the season with a car that was generally quicker than Force India's, but they've ended generally slower. They've lost ground to Force India on performance. Um, both have been developing through the season at a rate you don't see, but Force India has clearly done a better job. Yes. And then he also admits that um, Renault has also come through with better performance through the season, and they're going to need to keep their eye on him because that's the next big threat. Okay. They need to start developing faster. Well, I think what he's missing is, yes, they need to, to be developing faster, but they need to not just be watching Renault at this point. Stop watching behind you. Start looking ahead of you, too. Well, they also need to be looking out for McLaren because I think that there is a very good chance that if Renault can sort out the reliability issues and continue on the performance curve that they are on, at the very least, there shouldn't be any reason why McLaren shouldn't be fourth or fifth. Yeah. You know. I, I agree with you. So, they got to look out. Now, Force Indy, on the other hand, they come out and say that they have a better understanding of their 2018 car than ever before, which on the surface makes perfect sense because – well, you know, we're getting closer to 2018. You need to have a better understanding of your car at this point. Well, the and thing and is you can't as you get closer understanding. Well, that's then <laughs> let, let's review. Since 2018 hasn't started, you can't have a worse understanding of your car than you did when you like put it down on paper. Well, see that's not necessarily true. Again, let's look at McLaren and look at what happened with Honda. Once these cars hit the track for testing, and all of a sudden you go, oh, wait, none of work. this works. But they're not at testing yet. <laughs> they should be every day having a better understanding of their car up until the point that it fails on the track. Um, but they do think that um, there are a lot of lessons and a lot of things that they have learned from 2017 that – will put them on a very good footing going into 18. Makes sense. We'll see. I don't know. That's that's what they're saying. Now, Renault, they have already set their first target for preseason testing. Okay. Um, and yes, it's a performance target, but it's not a speed target. They want to survive? Kind of. They, they, they want to be – their target for preseason testing is that they want to become the top three team in terms of testing mileage. So driving that relia – I mean, they've had some serious reliability issues. Now, as we have seen not in 17 but in 16 of just because you can put down gazillions of miles in testing does not mean that once the season starts you won't have – exploding engines because Mercedes ran into that issue with at least one engine. Specifically Lewis. Yeah. But that is their hope is that they can work out the bugs going into testing 
so that they can get some good mileage and they can start focusing on some other parts of the car, like, oh, maybe boosting performance without having to deal with the reliability issues. And, and last year was a very bad reliability year for them. Mm-hmm. Whether it was testing, whether it was through the season, again, look at all the issues that Max had. They had issues with the ECU that they went back to an old design to come back to a new design to go back to the old design. They've had some problems. So they're hoping that they can sort it out. And then our last bit. And, and, and Not even a story. It's a bit. Well, and the, the BBC initially published this, and this, this is where the story comes from. And some of it, I think, is because they were hyping uh, a five live show and podcast that they, they released this week. And I think that was some of the reason – for the story, and I didn't know that when I dropped the story into the lineup, but then when I heard the show, I'm like, oh, well, okay, this this makes better sense. The BBC decided to, um, I don't want to, I don't think reignite is, to, to explore the debate on Grid Girls, explore the debate. Um, and I will also op- open this with my first thought, having listened to the podcast, it was a decent podcast, but I think... In particular, the woman that they brought on to represent the view that there should not be grid girls stunk. I think her reasoning and her logic was weak. I think there were there are much, much better arguments to be had for why not to do this than what she made because it seemed that the, the whole core of her argument was because – there is a require there are requirements around body shape and age and gender of the folks who are performing those roles that we shouldn't have them that because seemed to be the not inclusive right that seemed to be the sum total of her argument as to why you shouldn't do it and that to me if that's all you can come up with to me, that's not necessarily a great argument. There's much better reasons to that. Um, Do you I'll, have any of them? As you just well, I was wondering. Dead, I'm going. Where is he going with this? Is he going to explain what a valid and reasonable argument for this is? Well, where I'm conflicted with this, okay. and 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 that that was my, my my issue is my own personal conflict with this is. Um, for starters, as television viewers of the race, we don't go to, we haven't been to a Formula One race to see what grid girls do throughout the Sunday or through the whole weekend because it sounded like in listening to this, there's other things happening with them. And the woman that was, the two women that were on about what grid, uh, on the pro-grid girls mm-hmm. commentary, they very much focused on there was so much more to them than standing on the grid with numbers. Yeah. Um, we don't see a lot of what happens. So we don't know what else goes on. So from there's a part of me that that's, I, I don't know everything that happens as much as there is insistent that there is other stuff. IndyCar doesn't have grid girls. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, arguably – the need for someone to stand and say your car goes right here is dramatically less 
you know, now that they don't drive through the grid because you've got your mechanics that push the cars up. Um, but the other thing, and, and Will Buck Buxton took part in it along with Jenny Gao, who hosted it. Well, actually, I think she moderated is the best way to describe it. Um, but one of the, the, the points that were made, and it's something that we have definitely seen, not just since Liberty has bought Formula One, but in the last couple of years, in many of the countries, particularly races that aren't primarily sponsored by oh, Heineken, um, the attire that's worn by the grid girls is regionally significant, culturally significant. This is not, as was pointed out multiple times in the show, the grid, the women that are on the grid, for the most part, they're not wearing sexually suggestive attire. They're not. Yes, there are some some tight dresses at some of the races, but and 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 it bugged me when the the girl who was against grid girls pointed this out specifically called out Mexico and the fact that they had the girls out there and that they could have had kids who lost their homes or whatever and instead of these girls out there in 5-inch heels. They weren't the girls who, who were in Mexico, just like in Austria and several of the other countries, they were wearing traditional dresses for the region and for the country. There wasn't even a lot of cleavage visible. They were, this was not suggestive. It was, and yes, sex sells. <laughs> let, let, let's because that that's the other piece yeah and, and and that was her point sex sells and and that's what these and and these girls were out there to titillate and stimulate and but they weren't and especially when she called out mexico this was not oozing and dripping with sex or anything like that they were wearing traditional clothes it was modest it was respectable I mean, I don't think in Brazil they wear carnival attire. But and and that becomes my other question of if that is accepted by both men and women in that country, and it, that is, you know, if a woman who who dresses like that to participate in the parades, it's a big deal to them. It's important. It's valuable to the women, not just the men. Who is F1 or the, or the Americans or the British or whomever to come in and say that's not appropriate? It's their country. It's a race that's held in their country. Okay. On one hand of this argument, mm -hmm. there is tradition. Tradition that is born out of a sex sells com concept. And, and I'm not arguing from a tradition perspective. I understand. Okay. Um, that's one side of the argument. That's the Daniel Ricardo piece of yeah. the argument. Um, there's another fairly reasonably valid argument that as, it, from a TV perspective, let's, let's stick with what we know, um, that if they keep the women in traditional dress or customary dress, whatever that mm -hmm. is for the area, it is nation promoting um, for whatever reason. Now, that only works 
in nations where they have customary dress. So, for example, at Silverstone, the average Brit doesn't have a customary yeah, dress. Now, if they but, held it in Scotland and they had women out in kilts, that would be but, one but thing. Let, let me throw this out there, and, and, and I would be totally okay with this. The race in Abu Dhabi and I think two or three other countries, the, the title sponsor is Emirates Airlines. Mm-hmm. If Emirates turned around and said, we want the grid girls to be wearing our flight attendant's uniform, in, and, and they were serving in the role of grid girls wearing our flight attendant's uniform because it promotes us and our brand, and we are, spo- we are a title sponsor of this race, I would be perfectly okay with it. I'm glad you would be. It it doesn't because it doesn't that, that that's not their attire isn't offensive. It's not overly sexual. I mean, it's it's Emirates. I mean, they're not about showing extra skin and all of that stuff. But it is a promotional thing. And even if they turn around and said, you know what, we're gonna have some of our some of the guys out there, wearing, or, or even the women out there, wearing a pilot's uniform instead of the, the flight attendant's uniform. Okay, awesome. It, ta- it, it makes logical sense to me to do that. Just like along the same lines, if they turn around and say, hey, we're in Australia, and we're going to – or not Australia, Austria, and we're going to have – because, okay, to, to be clear, not really keen on – Australian men in Aboriginal dress and probably just from a family perspective um, for Aust- for them to use Australian women in Aboriginal dress might not go over very well. Yes, it is very revealing, but it, it's more revealing than Brazilian. Let's go there. <laughs> well, okay, but it's also offensive for non-Aboriginals to be doing that and when an aboriginal's but average they, height is five five but but if they turn minimum, around and said it was an aboriginal you know to go with again the woman who, who wanted to go with the thing in mexico if they turn around and said in order to promote the aborigine culture and um the 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 people of the aborigines and the tribes and all of that it was aborigines who handled those responsibilities at the and they wore customary aboriginal garb Mm. okay but the hula dancers of hawaii used to be topless yeah and now we put bikini tops on them yeah so we can still have their grass skirts so i mean there's ways around that there are ways to deal with that but i would be more offended if in Toronto, we turned in Montreal, we turned around and said, okay, we're going to honor the First Nations, but we're going to put white people in First Nation guard. And, and, and that's, I, that I agree with that. I think that is more offensive. I agree with that. And, and, and then I'm not. And I'm totally okay with the, when they don't have a traditional dress. There was the Austrian dress that they wore, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> Red Bull wears lederhosen when they're in Austria. I think yeah. that's fabulous. I'm totally okay with when they don't have something that makes sense that they put them in a a ball gown, a, a column dress that is tasteful. My objection to grid girls, whether you think it's a valid argument or not, 
is the diminutive calling them great girls. They are not girls. Despite the fact that the woman said, I'm a girl and I work on the grid, therefore it doesn't bother me. They are not girls. Okay. Girls are children. They are women. They are adults. And by that token, they're being demeaned with the naming construction. And I like the fact that Formula E has reached out and they have grid kids. I think that that's a cool concept because I think it's an inclusive concept. They tried out grid boys, whatever we wanted to call them, grid men. Um, nobody really liked it. Some, I think Daniel Ricardo even came up and said, you know, one of the things, you know, they're focused on their race, but they look up and the last thing they really want to see is some guy's butt. I get it. But I, I don't, there's a strong part of me, the, the down deep part of me says, I don't really care. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter. I have an issue with the diminutive name of it. But if these women want to do that, then more power to them. I really do understand the idea of it would be nice if we were more inclusive, whatever inclusive looks like. That there's 21 spots on the grid. There's other things that could be done. There is more to traditional dress than just the women's dress. There are other ways that that could be done. And I would really and truly appreciate this idea that women's roles in motorsports are not holding a sign with a number on it. Sure. We have a, we have a Clara Williams. We have a Susie Wolf. We have other women that are doing things in motorsport that are phenomenal and smart and fabulous. And you know something else? We have some really good-looking men that are in motorsport that aren't that bright. Maybe they could hold a sign occasionally, too. Well, I, 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 I don't have any problems with the don't like it, them being called grid girls. That's, that, that's valid, and, and, and I don't have any issues with that. From the perspective of holding the numbers out there and the flag, yes, at this point— that is an antiquated position, you know, because the teams roll up there. But I also think whether it's a man, a woman, a child, or whatever, to have somebody out there doing that. It is part of the spectacle of the start of a race. And I think the role of somebody, Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I want to be clear on, the role of somebody out there, that is kind of neat whether it's a kid who never gets that opportunity or I don't know if necessarily the, the, you know, the F2 driver, but, you know, some, some local kids from the karting track or even if it's spokesmodels who work for or employees of a title sponsor or whatever, it's that opportunity. And, and in that way, it's no different from what IndyCar does with their start your engines announcement Mm -hmm. that they will go to and let the sponsor for the event have somebody make that call that from a spectacle perspective i think that is neat and that is something that they should do yes you don't really need somebody to do that but it is 
and, and it's a whole lot better than what's his face yelling out, let's get ready to rumble. I mean, <laughs> well, I, and I definitely agree there. I'm opposed to the let's get ready thing that they did in Austin this year. But I think that you're right. It, I think it is part of the spectacle. I think that they could broaden that piece a bit and not lose the spectacle and sidestep the controversy. There's a methodology that you could allow these women and people to play host and hostess in the parties, which I am assuming is the other part of their job. Well, that was one of the things that was questioned about that in, in, in talking to the woman who does this regular, and even the, the other woman who's like an agent who helps get folks involved, is that it doesn't sound like that's something that universally occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that I think the organizations that set these things up and are responsible for how that works over a race weekend needs to think about is really is that all they're doing is employing these folks to to look pretty on the camera when they're holding a sign or are there other ways that you can leverage these folks as hosts and ambassadors for whether it's the brand, whether it's the track? Well, and that's the thing, and that's where I go back to. I think, and I know it's going to sound so trite, but look at the name that you called this role. Mm -hmm. And if you were to have changed that to F1 ambassador or sponsor ambassador or Event, event host. Event ambassador or something along those lines. And you called it that. You elevate not just what they do. You open up the conversation to, hey, these 21 people do more than stand out here. This is one job of a 100 jobs that they do. And there are more of them than just this 21 group. You make it more open to say, you know, maybe at this race, we don't do five foot nine women. We do something else. We do something to honor something that's going on, something that's topical that makes us seem more relevant to the world around us. And it doesn't have to be necessarily men. It doesn't have to be children. But maybe you pick a common denominator of the people that are going to be on the TV that is something other than height and weight. But but the other thing, and, and this is where I think even getting hung up over the the, the height and weight and gender of those who are, who are performing these roles is part of the problem. Because, again, if you rethink what their role is around the track and what their role is around the event – as ambassadors, as PR folks, as all of that stuff, you then take take a look and, and you should view it, or at least the way I think it should get viewed, is very similar to the spokes models at the car shows. Yes, there is, because they are attractive women and they are dressed the way they are, part of the, the reason there is to get people to come and check out the vehicles that they are representing. But... The other piece of it, and as every woman who does this kind of, does that kind of work, is very quick to point out and very emphatic to point out, their job is not set piece. 
and that they can speak about the brand and the vehicles that they are representing as well, if not better, than the employees of the organization who are there as well. And that their job is to represent the brand and the vehicle as opposed to just stand there and look pretty. But the problem that you have right there, and you said it, is that for 90% of the population that will only ever see Formula One on the television, mm-hmm. they only see the set piece. Yeah. And those women are standing out there holding a sign being a piece of the set. And then they talk about this controversy over grid girls, not the expanded piece. And that's why I say you start with a name change. Yeah. And then you start talking about what can we draw as a common thread through this group so then it becomes an announcement it becomes a something that they can talk that the pundits can talk about this race's grid ambassadors are brought to you by xyz well it's it's not even just that but it, it it's it, if you start calling them ambassadors and you use them as ambassadors you start taking the opportunity especially if any of these women and I'm sure some of them are are multilingual you take them as the opportunity of every once in a while you get a media hit with them of this is so-and-so event ambassador, track ambassador for whoever. Tell me about the facility. Tell me about the track. Tell me about the things that have been done since we were here last year to make this a greater event. Tell me what the weekend looks like. Even if it's a minute and a half hit, you change that perception right? for the TV audiences, even if it looks completely different to the folks who are at the track because they get to see the fuller picture. The other piece of this is what, what we want to avoid in today's modern era <coughs> is we want to avoid the future Susie Wolfs and Pippa Manns and Danica Patricks. Even, even the future Carmen Jordas from looking at a race and going, the only people I see that look like me are holding up a number. Remember, and, and, and stop for a second, because it's not just the number people. It's trying to be more inclusive across the spectrum. How many African-American Formula One drivers are there on that grid? Well, wh- where I was... When he was growing up, who was his role model that looked like him? A Brazilian. Exactly. But where, where I was going to go, and, and, and you didn't give me a chance, is... <laughs> Shocked? And, and you don't necessarily see it as much in the American coverage that we have had in the past because they don't spend as much time trackside. But you certainly see women involved in the teams doing more than just being a set piece in some of the expanded coverage that you get, whether it's the folks who are the physios for the drivers or you see the folks, because it's really not 100% clear what they're doing, that are bouncing back and forth in the background around the garage in the team attire or back and forth between the pit wall and the garage and moving around the team spaces. And yes, some of them are working hospitality, but some are clearly doing other things. And, and that's 
because of the uniforms, there is no way to know, and nobody interviews the pit crews mm-hmm. for any. There is no way to know the number of women that serve on a pit crew. And I'm kind of okay with that. Although, one of the other things to point out was it was sometime this year, and I don't remember if it was Sauber or if it was Haas, but one of the teams, their chief strategist is a woman, and they tried to interview her because something had happened, and she ran away. But it was, they had an inspired race, and it was around the strategy that she called, and they wanted to call her out, and they wanted to call attention to how great this, what she did was, and she, on camera, ran away from the cameras. I don't want to, no, I'm out of (laughs) here. Okay, that might not have been her best move. (laughs) But even her running away and trying to get, you know, she she wanted to stay out of the limelight. The fact was, you saw her. They called out multiple times that she was the one who was responsible for this great thing. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, it's not just the folks who are driving the car. There are other ways to be involved and be influential in a Formula One team that you don't have to be a man to do. Well, I think that the tide is turning. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's there yet. I don't think it's I, – I think that it is still a harder road for a female to get into some of what I would call the smart jobs in Formula One than it is for a man. Um, well, I – I think it is – the opportunity is opening up. And, and eventually, in 20 to 30 years, I would hope that this isn't a conversation. I, I would hope it is in a conversation, but I will say that my suspicion is that in 20 to 30 years, it's still not going to be a 50-50 split. No, There's, it is still going to be a majority male sport. I, I don't ever believe that it will be a 50-50 split. For as long as we hand little girl babies dolls and little boy babies trucks, we will always predispose boys to play with engines and girls to nurture the and there's always the debate that's going to be out there that says yes there are girls that want to play with engines and that's fine but we tend to gender isolate babies i mean at the very youngest levels and I don't, what I don't want it to be, when I say I don't want it to be a conversation in 20 to 30 years, I want it to be that we go to talk to a strategist because they made an amazing call and the first words out of somebody's mouth isn't, this is the female strategist for XYZ team. It's, this is the strategist because Patty Lowe is never called out as being, he's the male technical director for Williams. Nobody says Toto Wolf is the man team principal. And they haven't done that for Claire or Monisha since, like, the first races they were in their roles. And it was done at that point because it was noticeable because there hadn't been women in those roles before. After those first one or two races, they were who they were incompetent 
And <laughs> Monisha, just for clarification, Monisha was incompetent. Claire, your sweetheart. Okay, well, if I had finished, it would have been incompetent and effective. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we should probably call it a show. We should probably wish our entire listening audience a very happy holidays, a very, very happy new year. And we will not talk to you through this podcast thingy until next year. And on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.